Welcome to Enscope, the healthcare security podcast. Each episode, we bring you interviews, technical tips, and a unique point of view on the challenges facing the ever-changing healthcare ecosystem. Here's your host, Mike Murray. And welcome to this week, everybody. This week, I'm so excited because we have Kai Bernardini here. Kai is a security researcher who I've known for a bunch of years. He's also a lecturer at Boston University's Metropolitan School of Computer Science. And most interestingly, he does some really interesting research into offensive security, as well as some really cool machine learning stuff. But today, most importantly, we're here to talk about ransomware, because in the healthcare industry, especially ransomware has been the scourge for the last few years. So Kai, welcome, and maybe give us a quick two minutes on what you've been up to lately and you know what you teach about at school, and just tell us about your world. Hey, thanks for having me, man, and it's really, really great to see you, or in whatever capacity this is. Yeah, f- far away from, from all the years, right? Di- <laughs> distance and social distancing, as we say. Something like that. No, I've been sort of up to my nose in everything recently. On the teaching side, I teach at a high school now, too, doing computer science there. I mostly teach discrete math and cryptography, which is sort of the space that I occupy now, somewhere at the intersection of theoretical math and actually building things. I'm still working on that like data science project, finding things in certificate transparency logs, actively tracking threats, and reading a bunch of cryptography books because I'm weird and that's what I do in my spare time. So you're just an all-around security nerd is what it really comes down to. I'm like a math nerd in a trench coat doing security, yeah. That's fantastic. So... I brought you on today because because as I mean, I'm sure you can tell me more than I can tell you about how much of a difficult problem ransomware has been for healthcare organizations over the last five years, right? Healthcare is the sort of the default case. When you think about ransomware, you think about healthcare a lot. So you're the best person I know about what is what is ransomware all about? Like everybody knows that it encrypts some devices and then you have to pay them money, but but how does it actually work? Tell me what you found. Tell me all about, like, what are the gangs all about? Let's just dive into it. Tell me what's going on. So maybe starting with exactly how they work. So it's not just about, like, detonating something on a system and then encrypting everything and shaking you down for money, like you said. There's a lot that goes into it. And that can range anywhere from trying to take over as much of a network as you can so you get the most bang for your buck. That can mean writing something that's somewhat wormable. I mean, I'm sure you know that, like, One of the ways that this stuff spreads most commonly is just looking for like weak credentials in RDP or seeing what access people have. You can see things that do something similar to like what Bloodhound does, where you like actively probe domain controllers to see, okay, like what boxes can like this computer access? And it actually has like a pretty interesting model where it's not just exclusively doing ransomware or exclusively doing like network stuff. They can like piggyback off of other services. So there are a lot of gangs out there, so I can't speak confidently about like what every single one does. But what's interesting to me is sort of how this all lives at the intersection of like maybe ruining people's days and cryptography. And sort of interestingly, like how a lot of these people do roll their own crypto and build out their own tools. So precisely how it works is there's some sort of initial infection where some computer somewhere gets compromised and they find a way to spread that across a network, typically an internal network. And the reason that's significant is because you have this big widespread issue of the really hard or in parentheses hard outer shell and then the soft gooey interior of an an internal network. 
where I still remember like taking a cybersecurity class in college with one of my favorite professors. And we did a couple of vulnerable machine exercises where you just try to take over a web app. And I'm like, man, this is wild. But like, this is never going to happen in the real world because this is super dumb and someone would have fixed this by now. Uh, and it's not so much that like the people who build this are dumb. It's that they're spread super thin and there's just such a huge attack surface that's super hard to lock down that you do see this kind of like old school, like, you remember Dan vulnerable web application? It's like a box that yeah. sort of is used to train people. And you're like, all right, like you're not going to see this in the real world. And then you do. And and actually, what what was the vulner or the the breach last year? Wasn't it Equifax that had basically that one of the the damn vulnerable web app vulns? Kind of, it was it was like a super simple struts vuln that that created this massive data breach. Yep, it's just like a kind of interesting looking command injection, and you see this all over the place. And again, like ransomware, like there's this issue of okay, like I want to go through and take over as many machines as I can and figure out a way to monetize this somehow. And there are a lot of strategies for this, some of them more obtrusive than others. Like one of the more interesting ones that I've seen recently is just Monero miners that take over Kubernetes clusters and just use that to try to mine as much as you can. By the way, Monero? It's just one of the privacy coins. So it's basically like Bitcoin, but has some nice interesting features like ring signatures where you can have some degree of plausible deniability about how much money you have and who you're paying. And it's significantly harder to track who has what. But the specifics of how you actually mine Monero are somewhat different than how you would mine Bitcoin, which makes it suitable for mining on things like Kubernetes clusters. So you have all these like interesting ways of trying to like monetize it. And ransomware to me has always seemed like the most pedestrian way of doing it. And I say that not necessarily as like an insult because it's also one of the most effective. I don't know, you could like rent out botnets and use it to install other malware and like sell to spooky people and do all this other stuff. But how about you just have them pay you? And it seems like such a blunt tool that just is so widely effective. So specifically how it works is there's that initial infection. It tries to spread across the network and get as many machines as it can. And at a certain point, it's going to start locking things. So the way that it does that is typically through some sort of asymmetric protocol. So in cryptography, you have all these cool things that allow you to solve problems like, okay, like, so let's pretend there's someone else on this call listening to us, which there probably is. I can shout something at you, Mike, and you can shout something at me, and everybody can hear what we shouted at each other, and all of a sudden, we have a shared secret key. And there are these other systems in place where you have public key cryptography, so most ransomware will rely on RSA in some capacity. Um, Not always, but you need some sort of asymmetric protocol. Where what happens is the sort of general workflow is once you're ready to start encrypting files, you have a list of file extensions you want to encrypt. You have a bunch of folders you want to encrypt because if you encrypt like the operating system, like all of a sudden it becomes unworkable and you encrypt all the file types that you want to. So typically you'll like encrypt Word documents, text files, everything in your home directory, etc. So enough where the computer still works, but everything on there that you want is now hopelessly lost in parentheses. So what happens generally is you use an asymmetric protocol with a public key that is associated to whatever gang you're dealing with. And they can build as many of these or as few of these as you want. Um, And I have an interesting comment about that in a minute. But what it will then do is it'll basically on the spot generate some sort of symmetric key, typically an AES key because it's kind of hard to mess that up. But you have seen people do things like roll their own RC4 and encrypt files with that. And once it's done encrypting the files, It then encrypts that file with its public key, shreds it, 
And you can either see it send that key to a command and control server so that you can unlock it later, or even write that file somewhere on disk. And at that point, because again, like you need a way to unlock it. Or if you don't, people will stop paying you and then you stop making money. So the economics of this are all interesting, but with this public key setup, what's interesting to me is, and again, there are some that like will establish sessions and try to communicate back and forth with the server, but if you're working on an internal network and you don't want to build up some like ridiculous like, I don't know, tunneling setup, then you probably don't have like a path to the open internet, or if you do, it might be unreliable. So you want to have a way of encrypting things, telling people where to pay you, and then having the ability to unlock it, even if you can't connect directly to the machine. So what I've seen a lot of is people directly writing the encrypted keys to disk, and then the unlock file will go through and decrypt that key and use it to go through and decrypt the rest of the computer. So that's sort of like ransomware at 10,000 feet. And obviously you get like the big scary pop-up and it's like, pay us or you lose everything. So, so in the early days of ransomware, I, re- I remember like five years ago when ransomware was, it got in the system and immediately just blitz encrypted everything. I feel like that has changed. I feel like people are being smarter about it. We saw the recent ransomware incident at the University of San Francisco or UCSF, not USF, mm-hmm. where they seem to be very targeted. Have ransomware authors become more sophisticated over the years? And, and sort of how, how has that changed from the early days of just like, I get on and I look at every share and I'm going to encrypt everything. Yeah. And just at like a high level, if take something like, you know, that might not necessarily be warmable and it's just like single use for a single machine. I put a Trojan inside of something and convince you to download it. And now like I can charge you, the end user, like maybe a couple hundred bucks before it's no longer worth it for you to pay to unlock it. And then that's it. And by, by, by the way, just for the listeners, the UCSF ransomware that just happened, they paid in the many millions of dollars just to, to, to give Kai some context. But but yes, so keep going, dude. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. And early on, like, and what you've sort of seen is like the evolution in cybercrime where like nothing goes to waste. And again, like I, I'm serious. Like they, they will use everything they can. They will like, steal emails and use them for spamming campaigns. They will go through and lock things and then hopefully leave something like hidden somewhere that they could maybe exploit later, steal data along with it. What you're seeing a lot of is things that are not only necessarily more sophisticated, but larger in scope. Where sure, like I can go through and like take control of a bunch of client accounts or, you know, like end users who like might have like considerably shallower pockets. And nothing really happens if they can't get into a computer. Like, sure, their life might get disrupted, but take hospitals, for example. If I lock everything down, like, people can't get care. So there's this considerably larger urgency to go through and fix everything. And in order to go through and spread that much more widely, you need some degree of sophistication. And it doesn't even need to be, like, really sophisticated. Again, Ryuk was spreading through RDP for a while. And typically with empty credentials or weak credentials, There are botnets that do nothing but try to brute force like gateways onto private networks or devices where there's some sort of account oracle. Account oracle being something like, I want to log into your internal account or log into your like Outlook like account. Uh, I can just like start spraying credentials across the internet and see what sticks. And that oracle basically tells you whether or not like, okay, this account is valid or not valid. And then typically all you need is a couple of sets of valid credentials and you can spread like wildfire. Again, because everything on the outside is locked down and everything on the inside is considerably squishier. And by the way, just to just to give everyone some context, like people think about ransomware as though it's this. And, and honestly, they think about all hacking this way, but they think about ransomware especially is that that it's some sort of 
uber technical thing, not just like, hey, we tried to log in with some doctor passwords and it worked. Right. And I, I, I think it it always blows people's minds when they understand how easy some of this stuff actually is. Easy and you just start breaking like little unwritten social rules. Maybe once you steal an account, you start phishing internal employees or start spreading like wildfire there. Sure, there are people that were like leveraging exploits. Like if everyone remembers WannaCry, which kind of hard to not remember it. Yeah, (laughs) you take something that was actually a pretty sophisticated exploit and weaponize it. But that's not always what people do. And sort of after it was already weaponized for them, you just reuse it. And after you reuse it, you start spreading. And the actual like software behind how ransomware spreads can be interesting. But the most sophisticated part of it is like how you actually encrypt things, because crypto is really hard to roll yourself. The punchline between every single crypto class I've ever taken is, yeah, this is hard. Don't build it if you're not an expert. And if you have to ask if you're an expert, you're probably not an expert. I will never forget this guy from the, I think the Tel Aviv University rolled in with a like giant sausage and he called it the meat in the middle attack, which was a play on words for like a meat in the middle attack. Mm-hmm. And he attached alligator clippers to it and poked the computer chassis and you could see an elliptic curve key like in front of your face as it was being I don't know. That stuck with me. And sort of all of the things that sort of go into creating like decent crypto is really, really hard. But what they're trying to do is different. They're not necessarily trying to go through and communicate securely. They're just trying to lock things down. And once you go through and lock everything down, like unless you're like on the machine actively watching it while it's being encrypted, if you miss out on that or you're not like well positioned, you're kind of out of luck because AES like from what we hope is really solid. And it's that sort of situation where if you tried to do nothing for like the next couple billion years with an insane amount of computing power, you would still be nowhere near like getting it on average. That's another thing that people don't really understand about ransomware. I have talked to a million people who say, well, they encrypted it. How hard can it be to unencrypt it? Right. And, and people don't necessarily understand how hard cryptography is. And I, I've been in computer security for 25 years, and I know fundamentally beyond all shadow of a doubt, I'm not smart enough to be a cryptographer. And, and maybe you can give some some color on why this is so hard. Like, wh- why is math hard, I think, is really the question I'm trying to ask, which probably has an easy answer. But <laughs> uh, we would need way more time for the why is math. <laughs> and to be clear, like, I'm not qualified to be a cryptographer. Like, I don't roll my own crypto. I'll sometimes build things out for funsies and just to like show that I understand how the algorithm works. Or maybe you need to build a decryption routine for something that you saw rolled in the wild. But in terms of like how I communicate online, like I rely on other stuff because there are a lot of really difficult things that go into making it. And some of them stem from the transition from Blackboard to code, where great, you have something that works really great in theory. Are there other side channels that are involved? So effectively, like security in a nutshell for me has always been like a question of how do I invalidate other people's assumptions? So like one of my favorite examples of that being like Rowhammer, uh, which came out of like Project Zero. And that entire thing was, yeah, you think hardware works the way you think it does. You think that there's like this perfectness in how chips function, where if you start poking DDR RAM, charges don't jump. And if you can flip a bit in the right place, and that points to like, the right offset to a page table that you control, you can like take control of a computer or get root on that. And Dude, when it comes to like crypto, I, yeah, go I'm ahead. sorry, I got to interrupt you on that one. 
because Rohammer breaks my brain. And I know that about half the people who are listening to this probably don't haven't gone deep on what Rohammer is. But at the at the most basic level, Rohammer was this exploit where people figured out that if you could make certain calls to memory over and over and over again, i.e. hammer, right? Hammer this part of memory, you could create certain patterns in computer memory at the ones and zeros level that would let you take over a computer. And I've been doing this for multiple decades. And I will tell you, I looked at Rohammer and went, wow, that's really friggin' complicated. And and by the way, you just explained it in 30 seconds, which I'm sure went by a lot of the people that listen to this, but you explained it perfectly. Rohammer is hard. And, mm-hmm. and what you're talking about is some of the really most complicated and most difficult things in computer security. And you're making them sound easy, but this stuff isn't easy for most of the people who have been in this industry, even as long as I have. And I, I think it's important to understand that some of these exploits are really complicated, and especially when you get to cryptography, when you get to things like ransomware, and it's just like, well, why can't you just find the key? Why can't you just reverse engineer it and find the key? It's not that easy, is it? Not always. And I don't want to get distracted with Rohammer because I will sometimes just not shut up about it. You and me both. Um, we we could do we could do a good hour on Rohammer. Maybe maybe some other day we'll come back and we'll do an hour on yeah. Rohammer. Because it and and by the way, the mobile version of Rohammer, which we both played with at Lookout, is feng shui. Yes, exactly. So much fun. Anyway, back to back to what you were about to say. But basically, like that's just like a really great highlight of. Computer science is built on like the abstract approach where I don't really know how CPUs work at all. I've like played around with like tiny microcontrollers and I know that there's like some instructions that it can do. But generally speaking, I like trust that it's going to like behave a certain way. And with memory, I trust that it's going to behave a certain way. And when it comes to building a cryptography, you can build something on a blackboard that's like hopefully rock solid and under certain like assumptions is going to function. The problem is something has to perform those operations. So in that example where I was like, you know, the kind of crowded room problem of me shouting something at you and you shouting something at me, there's a lot that can go wrong. If you're not careful about how you perform the group operations that like create this like crypto system, you can leak information that can like completely compromise it. And that's like happened. It's not just like something that you could do. People have done this. And when it comes to like taking crypto and like building something that will like lock a system down, We're talking like exponential growth in a way that's like impossible for me to grasp. It's something like trying to understand like how big two to the 128 is or two to the 256 biz is like really difficult. There's a great video by a guy who like makes really cool math videos called three blue, one brown that like highlights it. Wait, what what was that video again? We'll put it in the show notes, but at the same time, say it again. Three blue, one brown. And he basically tries to help you visualize like how big that is using the language of, okay, like, let's give everybody on Earth, like, a mega Google and take copies of that universe and then take copies of that solar system and just keeps iterating. And the punchline is, yeah, and even if you have all of that, it would still take thousands of years, probably more, probabilistically, right? Of course, there's a universe in which you get, like, incomprehensibly lucky, but I have trouble grasping how incomprehensibly unlucky that would be. Yeah. Or lucky, I suppose. But... those numbers break human brains. So so let me take you a different direction. So somebody's making money off this. How does yeah. that actually work, right? Like, how do they get paid? Where does the money go? Who's behind all of this? You know, and, and obviously, 
every ransomware gang's different. So so I'm asking for broad, broad, broad generalizations. But but just give us sort of the story. Like what how what is why are they doing it and what's behind it? They're doing it because it's really effective. And there's this sort of policy that like a lot of government institutions take on where it's like they don't negotiate with terrorists or they don't negotiate with kidnappers. And a lot of like high net worth individuals have a similar policy. And I'm not here to say what's the right answer here, but there is merit to the fact that if you don't pay them and it no longer becomes profitable, it slows down. And the way you get around that is you pick institutions where they physically can't just be out. You mean like a outage? Yeah, exactly. Like, Think of like a nightmare scenario where the power gets cut and eventually your generator runs out, you're, you're screwed. Everybody in the ICU is done for. And that's not just like a hypothetical. Like people start getting sick and die if you start to take down hospital infrastructure. This is something that I think most people can agree on. What you can definitely argue about is like how much like a ransomware attack does affect hospitals. But in essence, and this is for larger institutions, Think about like any sort of like industrial control facility that like requires machines to be on 24-7. If they just stop working, you as the operator of that facility are going to do everything in your power to get it back. And if it's cryptographically locked to the point where there's not a damn thing in the world you can do to unlock it without the secret key, people started paying in a way that I find reasonable. And a direct result of that is when people started paying and it became a reasonable thing to do to start paying, this started to embolden them where you've seen a rise in like the asking price for an unlock. So the way that it's monetized is like nine times out of 10, they're going to use something like Bitcoin. You have seen people using like sort of more potent privacy coins like Monero that are harder to track. Zcash. Um, Yep. And part of the reason I think that you haven't seen like wide widespread adoption yet is in part because some people might not know that they exist or why they're better. But also once you get all of that money, you have to cash out somehow. So this ecosystem also takes into account, okay, like typically it's this like interesting situation of malware that self-identifies and tells you, hey, I'm malware and you lost, I win, which is not what you normally see. And it also tells you how to unlock everything. So it'll give you an address. It'll tell you like where to send all this money to. And this is like some system around it where like people will pay consultants to pay the ransomware people for them. And the ransomware gangs effectively have to take this Bitcoin somehow and like clean it. So there are tumblers that do this. There are like launderers that do this. And that's like a whole other discussion that's like worthy of another like episode. But in terms of who it is, anyone who's trying to monetize via cybercrime, you've seen a lot of gangs out of Russia doing this. There was one of my favorites recently where someone bit off more than they could chew in China and then sent out the decryption decrees to a cybersecurity firm there. I'll send you the article link. I'm forgetting the name of it. We'll put it in the show notes for the listeners. But effectively, like, you'll see, like, a lot of this show up in, like, different types of cybercrime. So, like, the SaltStack RCE that showed up a while back that, like, let people into data centers, people were mining cryptocurrency on it. This is, like, an opportunistic setup where, they're not, as far as I know, a lot of these people don't have, like, dedicated exploit devs who do nothing all day but try to break into these systems via sophisticated, like, exploits. They kind of just don't let anything go to waste. They wait for things to drop or they just try to guess credentials or whatever other way they can easily get onto a system, spread, lock it down, and then shake them down and then rinse and repeat. Can I just stop and unpack that for a second? Because I think we, we need to pause and we, you, need, you need to almost say that exact thing over again, because far too often we think of attackers as something off of TV. 
they're doing this amazing thing where they're shutting down 15 city blocks and they have zero days that no one's ever heard of. But far too often, it's not that, right? Mm-hmm. No, and like one of my favorite quotes from like one of my friends is something to the effect of like, yeah, one of the things that really threw me through a world when I started taking computer science is that how stupid computers are. And you have to tell them to do exactly what you want to do. And like getting them to do that is highly non-trivial. And when it comes to like this sort of like media portrayal of like what hacking looks like or what all this stuff looks like, it's a meme in and of itself. The other thing is like, even if they did have the like ability to do this, which they might, right? There's like a lot of overlap in how these people operate. Again, nothing goes to waste, but sort of more to the point, like why bother, right? If like the easy stuff works, like why bother like burning something that's more useful? Totally. If you're like a ransomware gang and you have sort of like bigger fish to fry, why would you go through and like burn an O-Day on a hospital when like, I don't know, man, they have like really old versions of Windows running. Or you yeah, when, walk- when, when, some old window, when some old medical device is running Windows 98 or Windows NT4 with, you know, unpatched. Right. Or, or NT4 service pack five still with all the, the original vulnerabilities in it. Why would you burn a no day? There's no reason to. And it's very much if you don't have to, you're not going to. You're just going to use what works. Most of these spread through either publicly available exploits or just no exploits at all. You just use legitimate software, live off the land and just pivot through that. Let me take you a different direction. So and I ask this of everyone. So, so we understand where we are now, right? We have a sense of where we are. Fast forward 36 months. Where are we going to be? Where, especially criminal gangs, ransomware gangs, attacking healthcare organizations specifically. What, what are we going to see in terms of evolution? How's it going to change? That's hard to predict. Give your best guess. You, you understand these folks better than most. So your guess is probably as good as anyone's. It's tough. I mean, what we're dealing with here is like a tremendous amount of uncertainty and The way that I deal with risk is sort of like non-standard, I think, just because of like all the statistics I've taken. But effectively, one thing to keep in mind is there has been like a pretty significant uptick in the asking price to unlock everything. And there are all of these sub-industries that have popped out as a result of it. So namely, like this isn't going away. And if anything, they're being emboldened because it's still highly profitable. And so long as you can make money by doing this, there will always be people who will try to take advantage of it. There have been ransomware gangs that have said, okay, like with the pandemic, we're not going to go through and start locking things. And they did anyway. Yeah, that, that only lasted like a few weeks, right? Uh, again, in, in some sense, like these people have their price. And it's opportunistic in the way that the reason it's so effective is the people who have been like targeted by this like don't have a backup plan. And if the difference is like a few million dollars or a few thousand dollars or whatever the like astronomical price is and a couple of days of outage, it's a really tough call to make. And if anything, the urgency of healthcare right now with the pandemic, like I I hate to like, you know, like I hope this isn't coming off as like fun or anything, but with the urgency of like everything that's happening, like the appetite for risk for hospitals is starting to diminish. And it's becoming more and more reasonable to me that like, yeah, like if they do get hit, they're probably going to pay, especially if they're overwhelmed. The last thing they want to deal with is like some sort of ransomware outbreak that locks everything down. And by the way, even when they do get hit, they're still out of commission for a little bit. So they're highly, highly destructive. So best case scenario, you pay day one. And what is interesting, though, is like the amount of customer like service that you get from these gangs. Where like they give you email, they respond to the Tommy Matter, they're super, super helpful. 
if one of their tools doesn't work, they'll help you unlock it. Like, I don't know, like that part kind of stuck out to me where like, this is like a proper business and it's like a super illegal one, but it's one that has like the trappings of legitimacy, if that makes sense. So in terms of like where it's going, this is getting, it feels more organized and it feels unless something drastic happens to like stop it from being so lucrative and stop it from being so accessible, it's going to continue to escalate. I'm like not here to doomsay and be like, yeah, like cyber Pearl Harbor is going to happen because that's like not how things work. <laughs> Forbes. Uh, <laughs> we hope. We hope. But it's getting more sophisticated and it's getting more organized. And I think it's going to continue to be a problem for like the foreseeable future. You brought up something interesting and something that I've been saying inside of Scope for a while, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. My thought on the on the pandemic is that because hospitals in the last six months and in the next six months are so stressed. If you look back a year ago, you might have had the time like, oh, I can be down for a few days because I, you know, yeah, it's going to impact my business, but I have time. When the world is so under stress, to me, it's like it's almost a fire sale in some ways for the for the author in that they know that the hospital, whereas a year ago, it might have been like, oh, we can wait a week and restore from backups. Now it's like our ICU is full. We have COVID patients everywhere. Oh, my goodness. We cannot afford to be down for even another few hours. And I think to me. It gives an opportunity for the ransomware author to basically take effect of the customer now must pay. Or, or yeah. do you do you agree with that? Definitely, the the sale of convincing hospitals to pay is like considerably more compelling, and especially because with everything that's happening, to sort of piggyback off of that. Locking down hospital networks is like notoriously difficult. I think you were the first one to tell me that. Yeah, there's a reason it's not segmented. It's because it. Can't and I was like, what? <laughs> and sort of to tack on to that, like there aren't dedicated security engineers at hospitals or like not nearly enough. And fixing things as they get broken, like once you get infected by ransomware, they probably use something to get in. And if you don't figure out what that something is, they're going to be back. And who's to stop them from just leaving a back door somewhere and just relocking everything or not relocking everything, but siphoning data? Like, again, I know I'm repeating myself, but nothing goes to waste. Let me interrupt you and, t- and, and mention something, because I, I don't know if you know this. So in the early days of ransomware, ransomware wasn't considered a breach, right? Because it was locked and the idea was that the data hadn't left. But more and more, now we're seeing ransomware attacks, especially by OCR around, uh, around HIPAA, saying, if you get that data locked, it is assumed to have left. And suddenly now you're not just talking about, I have to unlock it in order to do my business, but now that it's locked... I now have to deal with a breach fine. Like it, it, we have added the complexity because of everything you just said that I think is also really interesting from a do I pay the ransom perspective. Now I also have to pay the breach fine that goes along with the ransom. And think about how valuable that data is too. Patient records, yes. Insurance information, yes. Who's seeing what? Who's getting treated for what? Financials, like everything is just super, super valuable there. Trial data. Think about COVID vaccines and, and just any sort of medical device trial, you know, any sort of medical trial. That stuff is all incredibly useful from an IP theft perspective. And I still think about like one breach from I think it was JP Morgan like years and years ago, where all they stole was emails and names. Uh, and that like seems like innocuous enough. 
And then some dudes just did nothing, but it was like a giant pump and dump scheme that was built on that email list that like made a few million dollars. So everything gets sent upstream and everything gets used. So this idea that it's locked is like, yeah, it is locked, but who's to stop them from siphoning it off first? And that's a harder thing to do, right? Unless the machines are like completely exposed where they can still talk to the internet, which does happen, which is why you're starting to see some more of that. But the sort of escalation that you're seeing is you're right. They're not just like one-offs that like lock a computer and then say, pay us. They get on a a computer, they wait a little bit, they spread around, they siphon off what they can. And then sort of after they've like ringed it dry, great, this is the way to like squeeze the last bit of value out of it. So after the pump and dump scam, like this is something that like, you know, everything can be monetized. And cybercrime is all about monetizing things after breaches. And the kind of interesting case of hospitals is the amount of work you need to do to develop a way to get onto a network is pretty small, right? Like cybersecurity is a lot of economics. Like if you want to hack Google, like you probably can, if you have enough time and money. The thing is, the amount of time and money it takes to do that is like somewhat astronomical where like these smaller gangs like just can't do it. But getting on to a hospital is a lot easier because there's no real unified way to lock everything down. And like attempts at that have been somewhat dodgy. Best of luck to you. Um, (laughs) But in that respect, the amount of money they're siphoning off of this is like growing pretty rapidly. The defense mitigations for stopping this are still eh. And it's still a really pervasive issue. So it's this perfect storm of they're making money. It's still pretty easy to do. The code reuse out there, like you can like Google crypto modules and just include them, right? You can build out these like services that are like built around unlocking. There's a lot of like code that's out there. So all of this to say the cost of developing like a ransomware like setup is not super high. The amount of money you get from it is astronomically high. And the mitigations that are in place to stop it from happening are still ongoing. So in terms of like where it's going to be, like probably bigger than ever, especially with all this urgency. And with everything in sort of chaos right now, like you can just wait for opportunistic times to lock things down. But I don't, I don't want to doomsay too much because like, again, like this isn't like the end end of the world. It's like not great, but we're, we're still going to be here, right? <laughs> this is why we had you on. It's because I, not, not to doomsay, but let's be honest. Like this is a problem. This is going to be a problem. We got to, we as an industry have to deal with it. And we're all very lucky that people like you exist and are out there dealing with some of this problem and chasing around these gangs. Quickly, where can people find you? Where can they get in touch with you? You know, where, where are you on Twitter? Where are you teaching? What are you up to? And, you know, get kind of the, where do we find Kai if we want to ask him more? For sure. Uh, I'm on Twitter, KB Intel, I think. I think I put in the bio. I shouldn't know. K- yeah, KB underscore Intel. I believe. Yeah, yeah. I'm on LinkedIn. Don't really respond to DMs. I'm on Keybase. I think that's also, K- no, it's KBSec on Keybase. I respond to DMs pretty frequently. And, and you can always reach out to me and I'll make sure that you find Kai because he's a great dude. One thing I do want to say, though, just like at a high level. So one thing I was talking about is in terms of like where the state of ransomware is going to be, like they're definitely being emboldened. And the one thing that's always stuck out to me as like an interesting question is, OK, like it seems like it's kind of hard to stop them from getting on the networks. And it's kind of hard to stop them once they're on there because they're, you know, the telemetry data is not there yet. The tools in place to do IR are not there yet, or they're still in their infancy. And the question becomes, well, how do you make this no longer like economically viable for them? 
And that's the kind of space that I've been occupying recently. Like, how do you go through and make, like, building botnets more expensive, conducting ransomware attacks more expensive? And the sort of solution that, like, we've, like, I've arrived at with a bunch of other people is, yeah, we should just be going after them, right? We should be, like, trying to cut the head off, like, any way we can because you're seeing this centralization of a lot of these groups where they are getting bigger. And they're, like, have all the trappings of a proper company. They hire developers. They have legitimate infrastructure. They have like this customer support attitude. And what I've always thought is interesting is, okay, like you can start to go after these like bigger fish in like more robust ways. And there are a lot of ways that you can do that, I think. But I hope that the future has a kind of shift in perspective of like, okay, like if you're trying to do the defensive thing, like constantly, it's always going to be a cat and mouse game. And if you up, like if you increase the sort of barrier to entry, that's going to curtail it a bit. Take a look at like phishing scams. They're so freaking pervasive because it's super easy to do. All you have and to do cheap. is own a website. It's so cheap. You can run on like shared infrastructure for like under $5 a month, clone a site using publicly available tools, and all of a sudden you start stealing PayPal accounts and like you're making more money than you know what to do with. And there's like no obvious way to curtail that. So if you constantly make this cat and mouse game, then you're always going to be on the defensive. So start going after them and see what falls out of that. But by the way, I, I, you know, I agree with you on this and we've had this conversation many times, but let's just be clear to all the listeners, please don't start trying to hack all your ransomware gangs that come no. after you. <laughs> yeah, that, is, that is not what I'm advocating. For. Regardless of what Kai's saying, because I think Kai's point is much more nuanced. I don't want you to hear the let's go after the ransomware gangs and the fishers. That's your pitchforks. Yes, yes, exactly. Pitch, Pitchforks and flaming torches. But... Uh, Yes, completely agree with you there. Um, and just to like clarify, more along the lines of like making it economically like less viable. Yes. Uh, and that can be disruption, right? Through proper legal channels, of course. Yeah, there, there, are, there are ways. And, and actually, that's, by the way, that's a whole other episode. We should come back and do that conversation because I'm a big fan of the economic argument around that. But dude, thank you so much. This has been a blast. You know I love having you. Anytime we can, we can get on the phone and chat, this is great. But seriously, dude, thank you so much. We'll have you back again and we'll go into some of those other topics and hopefully people get in touch and we'll talk again soon. Heck yeah. Thanks for having me, man. You're an absolute treasure. Pleasure is always. Oh, dude, thank you so much. All right, thanks. Stick around for this week's installment of Vital Signs, our quick take on a timely issue we think the healthcare security industry should know about. Hi, my name is Jeremy Richards, Chief Architect at Scope. Ransomware incidents are wreaking havoc on networks across the world. This is especially true of hospitals where multi-million dollar diagnostic machines are expected to have a useful lifespan measured in decades. These devices are often running unsupported, vulnerable versions of Windows, and in many cases are managed by the vendor, so deploying a patch isn't even possible. Ransomware, though, is often the endgame of an intrusion. There are usually weeks of exploration and lateral movement before a ransomware payload is dropped. It may not surprise you to find that the primary point of entry is phishing. So to find them before they're on the network, monitoring incoming email with an email gateway is essential. When a phishing email does slip through the cracks, endpoint protection can provide the telemetry needed to identify a compromised machine. But because of the sheer quantity of data, this type of host telemetry is only useful in a retrospective investigation unless some kind of automated anomaly detection is used. 
After an attacker has compromised a host, they'll work on lateral movement. To locate this activity, you'll need to look at traffic logs generated by your networking equipment. So for Cisco, this is NetFlow. Compromised hosts also call home. This beacon to a command and control server can be captured by analyzing your internet proxy logs. Known C2 servers are published by threat intelligence firms frequently, and new ones can be discovered with traffic analysis. Ransomware attacks are nasty, but they're also noisy. Now you know where to look to stay ahead of the game. Thanks for joining us for this episode of InScope. To make sure you never miss an episode, hop on over to www.scopesecurity.com to sign up. Or you can listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. And if you have ideas for topics, guests, or technical tips, please contact us at podcast at scopesecurity.com.